Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And, and then uh, within about half an hour, we could see evidence of our guys coming forward. And then the whole place erupted and Top, top Mile House was being attacked and it, it exploded like a huge firework. And there was a lot of fighting, as you can imagine. Thanks for downloading another episode of the podcast. You just heard from Fraser Haddo, then a lieutenant in the Mountain Arctic Warfare Cadre, describing the battle for Top Mile House observed from his covert observation position. My guest today is Nige Devnish, who is on Pod 46, where we discussed his career in the CADA. On this episode, Nige tells me about the recent trip CADA veterans made to the Falklands to lay a memorial stone at the site of the battle, which we discuss in detail, along with his thoughts on the site of other battles during the campaign. We also discuss contributions to the war efforts by Falkland Islanders and what the island is like today. I would like to thank Falklands Radio for allowing me to use interview material they recorded during the visit. And if you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to like, follow, share on social media. And if you could leave a good review on Spotify or Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from, it would be great and it helps spread the word. Finally, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can buy me a coffee via the links in the show notes. Time for knowledge. Nige, thanks for coming to the podcast again, mate. As promised, following your recent visit back down south. And uh, the podcast we did in the Mountain Arctic Warfare card was one of the most popular we've had so far. We've had over 9,000 downloads on Spotify and Apple and other platforms like that. And over 2,300 on YouTube. So a story that a lot of people are interested in. I'm sure they'll be really interested in this follow-up as well. You went to the Falklands last month with other members of the card. What was the purpose of the trip? Who went and... How did you get down there? Oh, Connie, thank you. It's nice to join you again. Well, the overriding purpose was to see the top Marlowe House commemorative stone in situ. I mean, we originally, the plan was to go down there the year before the 40th anniversary. That said, 
COVID was with us, and therefore plans had to be adjusted. Who went down there? Steve Nichol, who was our organiser, who was also, uh, as described in the previous podcast, my, my ops partner for the entire Falklands conflict, had developed a, a visits plan which enabled 12 of us to be accommodated at the Liberty Lodge in uh, Port Stanley. This was agreed and places were allocated on the basis of a timely response. Unfortunately, there were those engaged in shift work or away from their devices when Steve submitted the, the request to attend. Otherwise, I think, you know, he would have been oversubscribed by everybody. There was a reserve list for any unforeseen issues that led up to departure. And unfortunately, uh, the guy I spoke about, who I sort of gave comfort to, who shot at uh, Top Mile and Chris Stone, uh, he had to withdraw the last minute through illness. So disappointing, you know, for him. Although Mac uh, took a big photo of him and put him on a cardboard and um, we laid it down by Top Mile and took a photo and said, you know, that's where you were shot, mate. So... You know, we hadn't hadn't found that gotten that. Um, how did we get down there? Well, the South Atlantic Metal Association, which was new to me because none of us probably wrongly didn't belong to it, founded in '97, and I did not know that the South Atlantic Metal Association was modelled on the Burma Star Association, which itself was formed by veterans from the Far East campaign of the Second World War. If you're a recipient of the South Atlantic Medal or bereaved relatives. You can facilitate uh, of their services. In 2002, they organised their first trip to the Falklands and another 200 veterans went down there then. Uh, Liberty Lodge was established in 2009. I think, I think that was funded by a large donation by the British Legion. And I think the Financial Conduct Authority in London, who give the large fines to these companies that do wrong, uh, they also put up a, a large amount of money for it. And is that set up primarily for Falklands veterans and their families? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a dedicated facility. And it took us all by surprise because we were a bit concerned because we just thought back in our time in the military and certainly, you know, looking out of, of the army-type barracks that it will be rather sort of austere and everything else. But couldn't be further from the truth. It's three-man rooms. It's got a large sort of area for, for the settees, etc. It sits on, on the estuary there. You look out over the water. It's got a self-contained flat, so if you want to take wives or families down there, you can have an independent access and egress from the building. Huge kitchen area. Fantastic washing facilities. Um, and it's warm and comfortable, and it's home from home. And it's, it's something they've got absolutely right. It's run by a, a fantastic lady called Christine Ford, who, who manages Liberty Lodge, uh, looks after the veterans, it's free to stay, but at the end they get you given an envelope, and, and we all paid I think twenty pound per night that we stayed there each, you know, to help with that with the running costs. And of course, all that was made possible for us because at the South Atlantic Metal Association's office, you got you know two ladies, Joe and Marie, who dealt with all of our arrangements with such professional aplomb. I mean, they're helpful and good natured and relentlessly positive. And in today's environment to talk to two young women who were advocates of solutions and not problems. You know, they just simplified the entire process and guided our applications for the RAF concession flights. They set the standards in customer care. They were, they were just a brilliant team. And uh, I'd recommend now having been, anybody that was thinking of going is to, to do and go. And, of course, they did all that. And then some things, you know, we found that never change. We then have to get to the RAF to get down there. And I'm 67, <laughs> and, you know, I was never a great fan of the RF when I was it, and nothing changes. I mean, it's about six hours to check in 
be prepared to sit around for a long time. You, you, you're sat on a battle bus. I feel the scars, mate. I know where you're oh, coming you're from. You're sat on a battle bus, you know, eight hours down the Ascension. Now, we were on one of the first flights back using Ascension because it's been closed for five years for a huge refurbishment. So they've spent millions on the runway, on the pan and everything else. Yet you do an eight-hour flight from the UK down to the Ascension, you get off and you're taken to a pen, literally a wide pen, covered because it can be hot in the summer and it might be a bit of rain. And that's it. You know, no showers. So they spend absolutely millions and only the RAF will give you a pain to go and sit in. But anyway, they get you down and they bring you back, you know, for 285 quid. So I suppose we can't complain. But, I mean, they are the only airline, that, you know, that make Ryanair look luxurious. <laughs> so so that's uh, who we were, how we got down there and um, and the RAF to get us there and back. Okay, mate. So uh, I don't think there'll be any five-star reviews and TripAdvisor for that area <laughs> flight down there, but uh, I don't think many people will be surprised. What were your thoughts about going back after 40 years? Well, a couple of guys had previously returned. I mean, Steve Nicholl, uh, who, like you, was a bit of a historian, so he's been there a couple of times, and Rob Bussell had been back there and had taken his wife. But for the rest of us, um, to be honest... We had no outward desire to return it. I think we were all of the opinion that we'd been there, seen it, done it, filed it away, and, and that was good enough for us, you know. And certainly going back was never sort of considered a pilgrimage. As I just mentioned, nobody was looking for closure, and that is in no way seeking to disrespect those that have a need to. We all react and reflect to those battle experiences, be they loss of life, life-changing injuries, and all the mourning of the lost oppo and the heat of the firefight. But those that need to seek closure and or therapeutic support, the South Atlantic Metal Association has been at the vanguard, you know, helping those that need such assistance and continue playing a vital role. And there are still people that uh, have the old black dog through all these years through through those life-changing experiences. You know, that's the way it is. So none of our peer group were looking or seeking any sort of therapeutic intervention for a particular chapter in our journey. That is undeniably framed, you know, by our contribution to the Fortin's campaign. But for me, perhaps deep down there was an inquisitive itch that needed to be scratched, you know, maybe in all of us. There's nothing like else just to visit the ground that requires so much effort by all of the card of participants. I don't know, but if I'm honest, perhaps there's some truth in that for me. Um, so I'm glad I, I went down. But there was, if I hadn't, life wouldn't have been too much. But I'm richer for that experience, I have to say. You've already described your journey down there, significantly different to how you got down there in 82, but what was the Falklands like today, and did any of the changes surprise you in any particular way? Well, they both surprised and pleased. I mean, the first real impact, you know, from my perspective, was able to see the the islands in daylight. Back in 82, (laughs) you know, as stated in in my previous contribution, on the day of the landings, you know, we we sat on the back of the ship to get a cup of tea watching all these guys try and shoot down airplanes and everything else and um, we didn't get you know, inserted until until the evening. Uh, so most of our movement, you know, was at night and daytime, you know, was limited to, you know, to the field of observation from, from the OPs. Top Milo House engagement notwithstanding. There's now a road that enables you to drive around the entire sort of East, East Falklands. Now that was never there in, in 82. You know, the geography of the island did strike us all insofar that, like the Scottish Shetlands, you know, there's an absence of trees. In terms of, you know, size and scale, the East and West Falklands combined, you know, is about 12,500 square kilometres. Wales, as a comparison, is, is 20,500. 
but Wales has a population of 3,200 people, and Falkland's population is just 4,000, and 90% of that is in Stanley. Without any infrastructure around the Hinter Island or the camp, as they would call it, it's just rolling hills and, uh, and huge flatlands. Um, so it's, it has its own beauty. And, you know, it's seriously impressive by standing there and looking back to 82, the land geography that the, you know, the guys had to cross, you know. So, you know, that was impressive and sort of cast your mind back. The islanders back in 82 were leading a peaceful, albeit demanding, frugal existence. And then for 74 days from the 1st of uh, April, they lived under foreign occupation until liberated from the, you know, the 14th of June. So the Falklands today, from that time, is that since the contribution of those children of 55 that gave their lives, we were generally extremely happy to see the lives of the islanders had been positively transformed. They've become financially self-sufficient, almost entirely self-governing. They determine their own future and way of life. The community continues to be formed through voluntary immigration and settlement. You know, there are now a diverse society with people from over 60 nations having made their island their home. And at the heart of the indigenous Portland Islanders can trace their heritage back generations. It's amazing that really within a short period of time, I mean, the, the one main hotel on the island, the Malvini, is actually run by Philippines. Just amazing. In 82, I think they probably under, had under 10 sort of nationalities on the island, now 60. It's definitely sort of uh, progressed in 2009. They had a new constitution, which established and provides enhanced local democracy. The internally uh, self-government enshrines the right to self-determination. And the thing I didn't know is in 2013, they held a referendum, which was overseen by international observers, where 99.8% of the electorate voted remain a British overseas territory. You know, so they remain absolutely under the, the British flag um, and, and, and forever to remain a British outpost. And that was quite convincing in terms of uh, votes for. And I think that's, you know, one of the, the things I think we took away is that once we were speaking to the people, you know, you realise that when uh, when they invaded Falklands, it had been like a foreign force invading Kent or Cumbria or something like this, you know, mm. very much it was, it was our own people. And now, of course, they... The bulk of their uh, their revenue through the issuing of um, of fishing licenses out about 150 miles. Cruise liners have have shown now big interest. I think this year they got 51 cruise liners. You know, so when they go in to port there, they've um, tripled the size of Stanley. Got a road that connect the entire island. They've now got interesting challenges. You know, they they've gone in, in a relatively short period of time where British servicemen gave up their lives. But I think in, in this instance, you know, they've done that and, and the islanders have sent where, where they were, where they are now, the opportunities they've got and those opportunities are enshrined. They've honoured, if you like, those losses by the way they are developing their country. And uh, that was good to see, you know, so that's the island of today that we saw. It's interesting because in the warm-up, we discussed about the concept of a just war. Um, we, we sort of both agreed that that certainly the Falklands in our eyes fitted that. You know, I served in Northern Ireland, as did yourself. And I think with a piece of Northern Ireland, I had very much a mixed attitude to it. I felt a bit let down. But then I went to Belfast 
and salt has happened in Belfast and the Northern Ireland that I visited 10, 15 years ago is certainly better than Northern Ireland I patrolled in in the 1980s. For me and yourself, and you look at the Falklands, then compare that to the, the soldiers and Marines who fought in uh, Afghanistan, I think at least, you know, I had friends killed in Northern Ireland, you, you know, you knew Marines that were killed in the Falklands. I think, though, that there's not that sense of maybe, I don't know if betrayal is the right word for the Afghan veterans. I remember when I, I did my first sort of visit, my only visit to, to the Arbor region in the UK, and uh, and I had a very sort of solemn moment there because you see names on the walls of, of guys, and, and that gave me more an, an emotional connection to those uh, that, that gave their lives as opposed to my trip down the Falklands. I didn't feel that, that at all. What I did clearly feel was the fact that when you look at when the Argentines invaded and what that's lost through sort of the media is that places like Goose Green in the Falklands, where the Argentines you know rounded up all of the uh, the, the locals within Goose Green and the surrounding area. There's about 115, and they were incarcerated in the community hall 32 days, and that included a nine-month baby. You know, we're looking at the TV sets at the moment and seeing the carnage that's happening parts of the world there, and they were British. 2013 sort of survey said that 98% of them want to remain British. So I think that if there is a just war, that it was uh, worthy of a serviceman giving it their all in pursuit of a, of a sound objective and a sound political reason, then the Falklands has to be that war. That's what I think anyway. No, I'd agree with that. And you're talking about the influx of people uh, since 82. Did you know if there's any Argentinians have settled down? Oh, no. No, no. They, um, yeah. What was very clear is that because they invaded, I mean, we visited, I mean, language is important, right? And we visited the Argentine ceremony, uh, cemetery. In terms of geography, the Argentine cemetery is uh, based near Darwin Cemetery, but the Darwin Cemetery is actually purely for locals. And of course, the, the islanders that were there in 82 who were invaded had no time whatsoever for the Argentines because of, 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 of the way they were treated and, and they just came in. So there, there is a, a, you could feel the undercurrent of um, displeasure uh, for anything Argentine uh, in the Falklands. They would not tolerate it at all. And, and because they've got the cemetery there and, and that the feeling is that perhaps politically it was the wrong move and, and maybe that of all of the Argentine war dead deserved reverence, um, should have been actually taken out the sea and given a sea burial. So there was no connection to Argentina at all. And, and of course, you know, they've mm-hmm. got, you know, there is a cemetery there and uh, the kin, et cetera, have a, have a right to, to go there and pay their respects. It's tolerated under tight lips that uh, they do that. They'd rather there'd be no connection whatsoever. Somebody was telling me a story that I think it was, I don't know, somewhere in the 90s where, one of the foreign office secretaries went down and, and tried to, to sell the old, and that's probably the catalyst for the consensus vote they had, was that the foreign office were looking to try and do a, a sale and lease back, if you like, to Argentina, like they did in Hong Kong. And, of course, I, yeah. I think the 98.2% showed, uh, uh, you know, we don't want that. We want to be independent. We want to be within, within GB. It's interesting to see that depth of feeling is still there after 40 plus years so it just shows you as you said the scars that have been left oh. on the population yeah we're going to talk through the 
a bit about your visit now to the site of the Battle at Topmala House now. Mm. But before I do, I just want to read an extract from a, a book called Royal Marines from Sea Soldiers to Special Forces by Gillian Thompson, who actually commanded 3 Commando Brigade during the Falklands. And uh, you were kind enough to send this to me, and I think it's a great summary of the battle. I'll, I'll read this now. As he crawled forward over the bare landscape, Captain Rod Boswell tried to make himself as inconspicuous as possible. Conscious that his and his companions' green DPM uniforms stood out on the snow-covered ground, the dark window in the upper floor of the house where an enemy special forces patrol was holed up was like an eye watching them as they inched forward. When Boswell judged they were close enough to the house and in full view of their own fire group out to a flank supporting them, he ordered fixed bayonets and fired a green mini-flare, the signal for the fire group to fire six 66mm light anti-tank armour rockets at the house. At the first bang, a sentry appeared in the window on the upper floor. Corporal Steve Groves shot him with a sniper rifle. The house burst into flames as the rockets slammed in. Boswell and his assault group charged forward and halted, fired two more 66s into the house and charged again. Their quarry ran out of the house into the small stream bed close by, firing as they ran. Sergeant Terry Doyle fell, hitting his shoulder, followed by Corporal Steve Groves wounded in the chest. Ammunition in the building exploded. The assault group momentarily recoiling the blast before running forward, now shielded from their opponents in the stream bed by smoke billowing from the burning building. The enemy commander, trying to make a break for it, was killed by two 40mm projectiles fired from M79 grenade launchers by Corporal Matt Barnacle and Sergeant Mike McLean. Their adversaries stood up and threw away their weapons. Five enemy dead and 12 prisoners, including seven wounded, was a score for a morning's work by the Mountain Arctic Warfare Cadre in its wartime role of the Ricky Troop for 3 Commander Brigade Royal Marines. Uh, an absolutely... Great summary of the battle, mate, and really gives you an idea of what it was like to be there. And you were there, so what was it like walking around again in peacetime? Well, well I mean, firstly, is that uh, I was unaware of, and given my commitment to, you know, Royal Marines military history, used to give me more extra duties than Cracker Dan, really. But, uh, you know, I, I hadn't read this book, and somebody sent me this, and I passed it on to you to see if it will be of use. I then sent you a... Um, a sort of a 40 second clip video clip there on on the day which i've posted on social media by the way you did indeed and so think, people can see it yeah and i think if 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 people who are listening to this it's it's worth sort of looking at that as uh, um, as a reminder as i sort of go through this i mean we'd forgotten how open and, and barren the local geography around top Milo and the river system was um, i never remembered that uh, and that was an eye opener i mean because it was a glorious day that we we went in there um, you know, the couple of weeks ago. Uh, but I suppose the intensity of the engagement blocked out the exposed position that we're in. Then, of course, you know, the great opportunity for visit. And it's interesting that why we uh, were quite a close bunch of guys within the MAW card, we've always remained close. But it wasn't until we were got down to the Falklands that guys were opening up and you were hearing stories of what the other teams were doing. When you view that that sort of forty second clip, I start from the extreme left, and the extreme left is where when the fire team was. And as it pans round, you you see a high feature in, in in the background, and if you sort of went at four o'clock at that, that was the position where you know Fraser Haddo actually reported in that uh, I've seen the um, 
the special forces team enter the, the top Marlowe house. I erroneously had um, Carl Fraser there as uh, as a sergeant because he also did the uh, uh, the Goat Ridge recce, and I, I spoke about two sergeants going back to the COs, and of course Fraser was a was a lieutenant then he left as a colonel. So if you wish, because I was down on the <laughs> on the Falklands, so Fraser, apologies. Uh, but Fraser had reported him, but of course a little dip from him was that uh, by the time they worked themselves into that position, the Marlow River was about you know four hundred meters immediately below them, and above them it, it was concerned that there were Argentine sort of patrols there. So he and one other sort of took the water bottles in the dark hours to you know fill up the water. But of course coming back up the hill, he was then concerned he, he couldn't ID back his, his sort of OP position. So they slack under a rock and, and waited to sort of first light and, and freeze their butts off while, while that was happening. And then got back and rejoined the team. And it was also interesting listening to him because when we got back from our previous jobs as they were to get brief, to go out there and to do the top Marlow, the, uh, the classic sort of military thing was, you know, dawn a chat got out to the LS and we were due to, uh, you know, we picked up about six, up by six in the morning to be dropped about, you know, a cane half short of Top Marlow House at a particular river junction. Now, this river junction could be seen from Fraser Haddo's uh, location there. The Tullesking in Brigade and, you know, hectic time and uh, instead of being the first helo off, Boswell had to go and fight and grab some helo commander and saying, I've got a tier one operational job here. I, I need to get out on the ground. So we didn't actually get out on the ground until about 10.30. So it's, it was all bright. So you got all those best plans go down the drain. But what was interesting, and, and Rod Boswell describes this in his book, and it was, if you like, authenticated by, by Fraser Haddo, it was the fact that um pilot that picked us up from uh, 845, 846, good. I mean, I don't think he was at full throttle, and I don't think he, he went above two foot above the ground all the way there. And as he really flew up, to uh, stream system there, the junction. Uh, Fraser could hear it, but he couldn't see it. You know, and this was a bloody you know seeking. So he then was able then to to jump out, and he slowly sort of turned the thing around and went back from where he, where he came. I mean, it was a brilliant piece of flying. This lad did, I have to say. The Fraser Harrow's team still have eyes on yes. top Marlow House yes. as you were doing your infill to do the attack. Yeah, yeah, and they, and they saw it all. You know, so that was interesting. And then there was other teams down by the, the Marlow River. Ted Mahone, who was a team leader, one of the teams there, tells a story because, as you can see in the video I took, there is no cover. You know, you're either in the water or the gals. I mean, they they were freezing. You know, it was that close to nature that, uh, you know, a duck had come up and bit him on the arse, which was uh, <laughs> quite amusing at the time. So, you know, all these little sort of stories were coming out. But we dropped short and then we had to yomp in and, my memory was that I think it was me that I ID'd the house. So we came to a, to a stop and then Boswell had, had given you sort of quick quick orders there. So they went on to become the, the assault team and we were the fire team. And then um, the old green flare goes off and Steve Groves, who was beside us, sorted the guy up, up by the window. And, and then it all happened very, very quickly. In that 40-odd years, I mean, the, the openness of terrain had never... Never thought about that as such as being so exposed. And as we were sat there, it was just amazing. And we had quite a, quite a crowd that came out uh, on the day that we visited there. And one of the Falkland Islands Defence NCOs was there. We, we were talking, I said, yeah, that was the 
the fire position up there, and he walked back up there, and he found an old sixty-six from the actual firefight oh, wow. there on the day. So you know, he brought back that, and he said, "That's one of yours." We had a bottle of whiskey there, and because uh, Dee Groves, he's now died of cancer, and Chris Stone wasn't there because he had had an illness. From our last podcast, you know, that if you like, put a a line in the sand of where the the MLs and the Mountain Arctic Warfare Card had come from, you know, post Second World War up to late eighty two, and now of course it's it's the SRS, the Royal Marines have this uh, rather large stone and this in you know, a nice plaque, you know, as as as, as a point of uh, of remembrance. That that was good to do. We went at the end of September, beginning of October, so it was there, there Easter time, they were coming into spring. We got good weather for that day. Yeah, I must admit, when I looked at that clip you sent me, the first thing that struck me was the brilliant sunshine, but also, just to use a military term, how bare arse it was, and your use of ground and cover to get into a position to launch that assault. It does surprise me that you got the drop on them because there is literally nothing around it. It is it's quite exceptional use of cover. Yeah, yeah, right great guy. That. My point on on the last uh, conversation we had was the fact is that um, with the Royal Marines training, it's it's mentality, it's application. It, you know, the fitness you just take as a given, but it's about being very good at the very basics. And if you get, if you get that yeah. right, you, you can achieve quite a lot. And it's it's about having that discipline and, and the guys in the OBs. I mean, Fraser couldn't make it back to his OB that night, so he stayed. And it's just being good at the very basics. You know, kept my own knees team, you know, just tucked in under, under the bank. They knew they were going to get wet. They knew it was going to be, but it was the only part of exposure. If they were going to be seen, we'd have to walk on top of them. So it is open. If we had the benefit of nighttime approach, it would have been probably easier. But the fact is, you know, we're, we're then chasing the clock because we didn't get out on the ground yeah. for about half past 10 or 11 o'clock. You've got to hump quite quickly, you know, and then get there and collect yourself. And Steve, bless him, when he got shot, I mean, he was, he said, I've got a good view, but he put himself in a kneeling position and he knew he was exposing himself. He, he dropped the guy and then somebody obviously got, got a line on him and, and whacked him. He dropped one. Um, I did laugh there when you're talking about your approach and going through streams because any soldier or Marine will tell you every field fire and exercise, you end up crawling through a stream bed at some point. That's like, yeah, so, uh, all you, those years of training through, yeah. through stream beds are paid off, mate. Get used to it. I mean, be comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think if you get to that point, you're sort of halfway there, I think. Absolutely, mate. So if any young soldiers listening, and all that crawling through stream beds does pay off, you never have to go to war. Enjoy. <laughs> Enjoy it, yeah. Get comfortable being uncomfortable, as Nige said. Before we continue the rest of the podcast with Nige, I'd like to play two excerpts from a Falklands radio interview with Mike McLean, who was a sergeant at the time, Fraser Haddo, who was a lieutenant, and I'd like to thank Fulton Radio for allowing us to do this. I'm here with Mac McLean. Mac was a part of the assault group on the top Marlow House, and uh, I think Mac said that he was with the uh, fire group. We'd been uh, operating for probably a week, obviously. Um, it was in Argentinian area, if you like. We had a, a OPs, operational positions, operating in those areas, uh, reporting on the Argentinian movements and also looking for places for form-up uh, areas where attacks could be made on their positions, and that was our job, really. That was your job, yeah. It was to gather the intel. Really. Gather the info, all we could, what they were doing, where they were moving, give some fire missions from time to time, 
just let them know that we knew where they were. <laughs> and then we'd, uh, we'd come out. And, but I wasn't in any of those sections. I was back in the base directing or, or on the radio, basically. And the only time I actually really did anything was for the, the actual attack on Top Mall. So that came about by uh, the fact that you had to get a helicopter, a commandeer helicopter? Yeah, we, um, we spotted them. And then, uh, obviously, the, the radio message came in from a chap called Fraser Haddo. He's one of the OPs and said he'd seen 17 Argentinians going to Top Mall House. They wanted to do an airstrike. The boss asked for an airstrike, didn't get the airstrike. So then the boss thought, well, why don't we attack it? And so we were supposed to attack it at dawn the next day. There's a shortage of helicopters. And we we attacked it in broad daylight midday. <laughs> <laughs> just what not to do. <laughs> just, not, just not what to do. Yeah, so that's how, that's how we eventually ended up at, um, by helicopter to in the, in the, in the, in the re-entrant near Top Marlow. We, we walked to it and set up ourselves cached our Bergens and everything else because we didn't know what was going to happen afterwards we didn't realise if we could get anything to get us out so we were going to have to walk out but uh, luckily we got aircraft to take us out because we had got three wounded by that time the battle yeah. had finished and so you got to your position as a fire group then and then you waited for the signal for the, for the whole thing to start really Yeah, and that we had a sniper that was quite to our left hand side and he was working on his own and he more or less fired the first shot Someone came to the top window and he had to take care of that person, the looker. But so, minutes later, he himself was shot, sir. And they were obviously aware that they were under attack. He then stood up. We had to stand up to, to show ourselves to fire. So that's when we, we received fire from them. From them, huh? Immediately. So you fired um, quite a few of the heavy machine in you, the six millimeter? It's, it's a rocket launch, it's a yeah, 66 millimeter launch, an anti tank weapon, actually. An anti-tank. And we fired those into the building and. They, I, you know, most of them got out of it. But yes. it, it, when it actually started to catch fire, it, a lot of ammunition caught and it lifted the roof off probably 60 feet in the air. But okay. a lot of them got out by that. I think there's a couple left in. And they started to fight then. In the, in, they went into the entrance by the stream and they started to put up a good fight, really. Well, and we started then to receive casualties. Small firefight, really. I think once they realised that we, we had a um, better advantage... Because they'd they'd gone in. We never had machine guns. They were firing at us armor-piercing rounds, um, which were quite lethal. Some of them had tracer, the, the mix of bullets up to three armor-piercing tracer and and long range. So they were they were firing those. They had a, a couple of automatic weapons, but um, I think it would just overwhelm them. I think the lads sort of charged like a, an old-fashioned bayonet charge, and I think it frightened them a bit. Yeah, yeah, some of the sea bayonets coming yeah, in. Yeah, and they were big on lads, you know, quite big lads, and I think they just frightened them. But they did put up a good fight, you know. They sent two helicopters to take us out. Mm-hmm. First one, everyone was loaded into. But at the end of it, I think I was guarding prisoners. Mm-hmm. And I, I treated a couple of their guys, and we, we were guarding them, uh, a body that they asked if we'd take back with us, and we said, yeah, because it's what you do. Yeah, the other patrols came in. Then they sent a, um, a helicopter to pick the injured up, the rest of those patrols, and then everyone legged it and left me in the bus. <laughs> <laughs> with, with an unfortunate deceased Argentinian chap. What, what seemed a long time, um, another helicopter appeared and, and lifted us to off. Oh, OK. So with, with, the, with the uh, unfortunate dead yeah. body. 
What did you do later on? Were you part of Goat Ridge or no? No, we, we then, yeah, not, not me personally, but yeah. the, 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 I went back then onto the radio because we, we had patrols out still, so they had to be moved to go and find other places to stay. Right. Because we'd moved by this time, you see. So we, you came across somewhere and, and, and they, you just had to show yourself and come in. You want somewhere to sleep, get down there, get, and, you know, and they were great. They were brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And for the whole time, we were um, accommodated by them. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You know, yeah. and anything we wanted to know, we got, and they they fed us in some cases and looked after us really. Yeah, the least we could do. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was fantastic because a big part people don't say. I think more should be said about the Falkland Island people and what they did to help people like us in special forces, and they really looked after us and gave us somewhere to yeah. to operate from. Basically, that didn't come out for many years, and only just coming out now. I think, yeah, yeah. got a lot of that. Yeah. But uh, I'd like to say thank you so much okay. for giving us your time. Oh, okay. It's a pleasure. Experience. And, it, and it's great to be here and we're being looked after just as well now. <laughs> <laughs> we're glad we are looking after you. Yeah. Thank okay. you very much, Mac. You're Love very you. welcome. So your full name is? Fraser Haddock. Fraser Haddock. Yeah, you were a young lieutenant? Yeah, Ron, Ron Riz lieutenant. Had it been in the army, it would have been called an army captain. Well, we had, we yeah. had different ranks because yes. we matched the naval, naval rank system. So what was your role then? So well, before we set sail, we had to reorganise ourselves because I'd been a student on a course, for a nine-month mountain leaders course. Right. And it was a, quite a demanding course and the the instruction that you got in the course was quite rigorous, mm-hmm. if you put it that way. And I was being trained by these very experienced people who were exceptionally well trained. And some of them had had, 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 had special forces training with the SAS in terms of uh, communications and other things. Suddenly, um, when we were told to be to reorganise for the Falklands, instead of being a student on the mental leaders course, I was a, a troop commander with four teams. And some of my teams under me were my uh, previous instructors one day earlier than that. Yeah. And so that kind of dynamic was quite, quite complicated, especially, as you've probably noticed from, from speaking to us, there's fairly strong personalities. Yeah, and you had to control that one. And so, so that was... And dynamic that you had to understand. Yeah. Anyway, so we continued our training on the way down, mainly comms training and medical training, and setting up our organisational um, mm-hmm. communications. I had a team of four, and then three other teams, two of which were had a colour sergeant in. So there's an officer and, and, and a sergeant leading two teams, and a colour sergeant and a sergeant leading the other two teams. And that was our structure. And we didn't go in at first. The lead teams went in to form a screen in front of the brigade before landing, and we didn't. 
but then our job was to was to go beyond that after the brigade had established itself. We were tasked to carry out an, an observation post to overlook the ground north to south around Top Mallow House, that huge open space. We dropped off about 12 kilometres to the west. Uh, we were equipped for a maximum of 10 days, so we were carrying uh, quite a lot of kit. As the people in the Falkland Islands know, the terrain is quite tough. And so we had to cross a, a number of rock runs, which were really, really hard at night with poor visibility, given the fact that you're trying not to make any noise and you're carrying a great deal of weight. And uh, one of my Marines, uh, uh, one of the corporal, uh, badly in- injured his leg in one of the rock runs. Anyway, we survived the rock runs and we got to eventually a position which we thought we'd have to do. It was very poorly sighted in terms of observation because, uh, in terms of protection, because there was very little protection on these on these very bare hillsides, and it certainly wasn't providing us any protection from any uh, incoming fire. But it was the best that we could find. Now, when we got there, we, we were very short of water, so myself plus one of my men went back to get water at a water at a small stream that we'd seen about half a mile back. So we went back to get to what two of us went back to get water. I was wearing a, a windproof jacket and very very thin leafer confessed as it were because we'd been so overheating tired on the way in so we got to the water point I filled, I filled all the water bottles because I told them what half the water bottles for the team heat the other half bottle bottles for the team put them inside my windproof we started to move back and the clag came down and suddenly we couldn't see five feet in front of us uh, and we, we realised that we wouldn't be able to go back to the, to the other two safely because had we confronted them it would be very very likely that it would be a blue on blue so we had to sit tight, and we'd, no, we'd only our belt, we'd our fighting order, but we'd no uh, warm kit. We had a very thin um, emergency sleeping bag, which we both jumped into and spent the night absolutely freezing, uh, waiting for the, for, the, for the dawn to come and hoping that the, the, the clag would lift. Eventually the dawn came, the clag lifted a wee bit, and so we managed to get to the, the OP position and re-establish ourselves safely without <laughs> cutting any blue on blue. We established the OP and made it as secure and as discreet as possible in terms of camouflage. And uh, suddenly, uh, during the course of the day, we saw 17 little stick men coming along from left to right and uh, walking into Top Mallow House. Now, Top Mallow House was the, was the only obvious feature in front of us, and it looked like a single a billiard ball on a billiard table because it was just so, so obvious and such, a, such a, an easy thing to attract your eyesight. So... We were quite surprised that a military force would would commit itself and, and put itself in such a vulnerable position. Anyway, that's what happened. Seventeen of them went in, so I radioed back to to my to the Kadar headquarters, explained what was happening, and asked for an airstrike. I'd just seen a Harrier overhead, and I thought, well, how, how fortunate is that? And the Kadar went on to the to the the air ops desk, but for some reason, technical reason, operational reason, we couldn't get the airstrike, and so. Um, we continued to watch the, uh, the, the the OP all night to make sure that nobody escaped or not to, to observe that nobody escaped. And uh, we waited until the next morning to see what was going to go on. Now that night, for some reason, the comms went down and, and all across our area, got the, 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 there was a real kind of electrical interference with comms and none of us could speak to, it, to, to each other. Um, over the radio, and we had, we had HF radios. Anyway, the next morning, I saw nothing, but I heard a helicopter, but I didn't see the helicopter. Uh, because the helicopter pilot was flying so professionally and accurately, and as far as, as now I now know, they was flying along a tiny, tiny river line and keeping so low that I didn't, we, none, none of us could see him. And we were 
1,000 metres away and 150 metres higher. So we were overlooking the whole site, didn't see the helicopter, but we could hear it. And, and then uh, within about half an hour, we could see evidence of our guys coming forward. And then the whole place erupted and Top, top Mile House was being attacked and it, it exploded like a huge firework. And there was a lot of fighting, as you can imagine. And uh, then things died down. We thought we'd better rejoin the the, the, uh, the guys. But because our job was to work forward of friendly forces, we'd also be very, always to be very careful on the way back in to identify ourselves. Because the greenberry is a good thing, but the greenberry can't really be seen at a thousand metres. And so I always carried a, a Union flag in the bottom of my Bergen. Mm-hmm. So, on, so on the way down, we lifted the, the Union flag to make sure that they knew that we were our guys. And, and we, we rejoined the rest of the group. And that was the end of my experience. That, that's fantastic, is it? We're so grateful for the support we got here. Um, and, and our trip was only made possible by the generous contribution to our, our funds by the RN, RMC Greenwich Hospital Remembrance and Combridge and Comrade Fund. And they, they provided some funds to support uh, our trip here and also the, the, our opportunity to have the... Uh, the memorial built at Top Mallow and to give some recognition to the people, the civilian people who helped build it. After that account by Fraser Harrow, the conversation continues with Nice Devonish about the rest of his Falklands visit. You, you mentioned it was quite unusual for you to see the train in daylight, but it was also a good opportunity for you to vi- visit other battle sites. So what other ones did you visit and what were your thoughts there when you saw the ground and, and where the fighting took place? Well, at Liberty Lodge there, I mean, it's so well organised, so you we had a discussion with ourselves and um, and then we got Steve to produce some of our programme. We were able then on various days, you know, on the first day we did a long trip route, we did uh, the cemetery at Port San Carlos, we had the Argentine Cemetery, Goose Green, went to Teal Inlet, did Mount Harriet, Mount Kent, Goat Ridge, Two Sisters, we did Mount Longdon, Wireless Ridge, Moody Brook and Mount Vernet. And what was really interesting when we were visiting all these places is that we were being accompanied by two ex-Bootnecks. One is Gary Clement, who who has a particular role within Liberty Lodge and for the South Atlantic Metal Association there and sort of chairs that from the Falklands element. And you had a, another uh, Bootneck, Trevor Law, who also happened to be uh, an ML in his time. And these guys now um, have real in-depth knowledge of sort of individual battles down to section level of, of, of where people were, were moving. And, of course, they were aided by, you know, civilian drivers who were, you know, farmers and also were there when the island was invaded in, in, in 82. So we had Terence Phillips and his wife, Carol, was also a key contributor to the Falkland Scarves and things like this. I mean, a, a fantastic couple and Terence and, and Carol had the farm at... Um, San Carlos back in 82 I mean he had like 58,000 acres it's a bit like Australian farming you know these guys have huge pieces of real estate and we had Keith Heathman pass and then we had Robin Goodwin he had his son Kenton Goodwin and Uncle Mike because Uncle Mike to, to, to Kenton and then we had Jimmy Moffat there was uh, another ex neck that's uh, developed businesses down there so we had a lot of um great sort of local knowledge and relevant knowledge of all of these places that we that we visited so it was great that 
I mean, it was poignant going to San Carlos imagery because, uh, I mean, that's in such a glorious position where they've got this. And it's just typical of what the men actually do well in terms of, um, you know, setting these sites. So that was good. Um, it was good to see Goose Green and you walk around and see where H. Jones uh, fell. And, um, you know, for a lot of us, it was it was just really, really interesting to get the lowdown on why Jones was at the front there because I had rumour control and you now things stories sort of dilute or change over time but it was feared that Jones was shot in the back by one of his own guys but in fact as he went up a tight re-entrant to turn left to focus on two sort of any position over his right hand shoulder he didn't see the Argentine position the other side of the re-entrant and that's what uh, that's what dropped him each of these fallen have their own little canes or little sort of uh, monuments there which is, which is quite nice because we went then to Goose Green and we did Harriet and we went to London and we did Two Sisters. It was just interesting going through that and, and seeing, you know, what guys did and looking at the the, the the geography and the ground. So Two Sisters and Harriet Ridge, arguably the more sort of mountainous, rockiest sort of outcrop I mean, Longdon was a version of that. Uh, would take nothing away from from Longdon, but then, so you know, we sort of contrast and compared how people, you know, how was it that a suffered more losses than the other? Yet the trains were quite the same, the same sort of human beings go and, and do those uh, those opportunities. Tier Inlet was interesting when when we were driving down towards Tier Inlet. Our driver, who was uh, Terence Phillips. As I said, who had a, um, a farm at, uh, at San Carlos. Lots of these little stories came out in our visit that we'd never known about, and really sort of hit in the heart. Really, there was a family of a of a, of a deceased serviceman. I won't give the cabbage or wherever it was. The mother wanted wanted to be able to buy a piece of land in the Falklands. So you know, for her and her family, they could say, well, their son actually died for, you know, for something. That family had, had, had tried to navigate, you know, the MOD bureaucracy. And, of course, the MOD bureaucracy said, no, you, you can't do that. Uh, they tried the, the islanders that were probably constrained by UK government and government house there on the Falklands and said, no, you can do it. So Terence and uh, his wife, Carol, had heard of, of this plight and of... This 58,000 acres, there's a, there's a little island. It may be half an acre or whatever. You, you can walk a bit. It's tidal. You can walk across there. I'd heard of this plight and I think sold it for a notional pound, you know, and now this island has the name of this family. So this family now has has a legacy in which they can hand down to the generations because that's what their, their son fought for. And he was near to tears, you know, when he was telling us. That cut through, that was really emotional. I mean, that was... Um, the islanders who had, who had been invaded, this was something that they could do, you know, very little cost to themselves and, and that they wanted to do. Talking to Robin Goodwin one day, we were driving around and he too, were when the wives or the mums and dads had, had gone down, he was he was driving a, a particular mother and, you know, she was opening up and, you know, having a good cry in that. And she said, well, perhaps he didn't die for nothing. And that, yeah. That really cuts through to to them, and even when I think about it now, it's it's quite emotional because it it was for something, I, and and I think 
the children of 55 who, who did not get back and gave their all is that those indigenous islanders are forever grateful, forever grateful yeah. for, for, what they, for what they did. And, and that was just, just amazing. And, and those little stories, and if you ever get a chance to talk to them and tease us out of them, it would, it would it'll be an interesting, um, interesting session. So we did that, and it was it. And Tulinlet was my first first sort of bop, if you like, and and it was a bit of a craggy day, so we couldn't see the the feature that I spent seven days on. But soon as, but it's funny after forty odd years, uh, there was much I'd forgotten. But as soon as I came over the hill, and we got to, I, I knew exactly where we were. <laughs> it was amazing that we, we yeah. got to the to this place. So we we went around to Tulinlet, then of course part of that uh, visiting all of those processes is that we were very keen to avoid any sort of blue or blues as we discussed on the last podcast. So we wanted to take sort of the opportunity to look at 4-5 Commando because they had a, a big blue on blue with their mortar troop and their anti-tank troop. Being on the ground and listening to Trev Law and Gary Clement discuss, you can see exactly how that happened you know and if you think of classic sort of clock face directions as the military would work on if you're in the middle you're expecting friendly troops to come at you from nine o'clock you're warned at 12 o'clock you know that there are 20 man size argentine patrols to your front be careful now the guys that should have been coming in at, at nine o'clock of course couldn't get there because the, the rock run was forcing them and you know, you know the guys carry the mortars and it's a lot of on a kit and they could hear the base plate clanking on the rocks. The mortar troop guy decided to bring them in. That eventually brought them in the 12 o'clock position, which was, you know, where they thought the NLB would be front. And of the seven fatalities, I think four or five had on two sisters, you know, four came from, from that blue on blue, um, which is unfortunate. Whereas opposed, we then took a long drive out with uh, Terence and Keith and we went to Mount Vernet, and and this is where the SBS Kiwi Hunt was was killed by by the SAS. You look at that as a blue on blue compared to the four fires blue on blue, and it's and it's like chalk and cheese. I mean, not sent out photos of that, but you could still see the individual patrol positions of the SAS because they've still got their rubbish after forty odd years, and it, you know it's still there wedged mm-hmm. in in the cracks. So of all and all of these places that we went to, and suddenly with the Royal Marines. Uh, we made wreaths and laid crosses of remembrance, etc., and, and drunk copious amounts of malt whiskey in, in these places, you know, to say you're not forgotten. But what was also interesting, I think, and again from the locals and the people that have visited, in Stanley itself, you've got a wood that's called Memorial Wood. And for everyone that's fallen, they've got their own tree and a, and a plaque. In terms of, you know, was it a therapeutic visit or anything else? Absolutely not. Um, didn't feel any emotions. Even our good friends that you know that we knew extremely well didn't make it from the from the Falklands. It was just yeah, you could accept that. But actually, in Memorial Woods, you then had plaques that are left by mums and dads or the wives of you know the fallen. That was an emotional read, you know, because that's yeah. from the heart, etc. And and that's a bit of a sacred place, and that, that's just nice that they have that there. So. Yeah, it was good to go around all the places, and and the week that we were there, in fact, uh, one of the uh, Royal Marine Corporals from Four Two, a guy called Mick Eccles, had, had sadly passed. So we was able to be stood in the exact position where he his MM 
he had quite extensive obituaries in the papers, actually, in the national papers that pointed out that he had died. So, uh, yeah, I remember reading about that a few weeks ago. Oh, I said, yeah, because, I mean, what everybody did was was amazing. Uh, I, I spoke before, I said, Tom Marler House was, was good. Yeah, that's fine. And, and the general was very, was glowing. And, of course, he's, he's used that in, in other books. So that was a surprise, you know, to, to many of us because we were unaware of that. But then was able to, to go to Goat Ridge. And whilst I was... Uh, always impressed by what they did and they super impressed by seeing it in daylight and seeing where they were and um, and how exposed they were and and they and the information that that they brought back so that was amazing to see that and and just walk it walk through what the paras did at, at longdon and then eventually go down to you know to wireless ridge you know listening you know to the civilian drivers you never heard before that of a night time on the on the big attacks on the 11th and 12th i mean they were all involved in moving ammunition up to the front and bring, bringing casualties back because they're the ones that, mm. that could drive off road, you know, to that school level that was that was required. You know, they did so much uh, that was uh, that's never been sort of reported on really. Over the period of about eight days, we did all that, and it was uh, it was just good to see. And uh, uh, there's little memorials everywhere and, and crosses, etc. So it was. Uh, yeah, and as I say, whilst none of us wanted to go down, and, and I said to me, it's it maybe an itch I, I needed a scratch. It was it was something what we glad we did, quite an achievement. We, we now know it to be yeah. quite an achievement now. Absolutely, and when you told me you're going to lay a memorial stone, I envisaged a stone in my mind that was maybe the size of I don't know a foot by a foot. But you certainly the Royal Marines do nothing by halves, and the memorial stone for Top Marlow. The picture you said it weighs four and a half tons, and looking at it, the pictures, it must be about eight foot tall. I think nobody's going to be removing that any time in the future, mate. That's going to stand for a long time. How the hell did you get it up there? Well, it was the cassis of this required an inquisitive mind of a man who radiates high intelligence and good breeding. And of course, I talk about an opera of mine, you know, Steve Nickel. You know, and like you, he enjoys military history. So Steve observed with a growing realisation that the only open source accounts of, of Top Marlow House were inaccurate and often written by Argentine authors. So Steve, on Steve's intellectual radar was triggered that there was a, a very real probability that these open source accounts, if left unchallenged, you know, would become accepted as the truth uh, because the, the Argentines were moving it like a, it was a victory, like Bravo 2-0, yeah. the biggest failures on Earth, but Hollywood gets hold of it, and all of a sudden now it's one of the best events of their say history. But it's another event based yeah. on, on failure. So the basis of Steve's owner's objective was to ensure that the most appropriate place to make a factual and neutral statement was actually in the site of Top Milo House, because in the intervening years the ruins had been abandoned, the abandoned shepherd had been just been left, and the Argentines had been visiting and using it as a backdrop of photographs to reinforce this corrupted narrative that they were selling to themselves. Now, I suppose in defence of the Argentines, you know, they did not have enough, the monopoly on promoting corrupted record events of the, of the Falklands conflict. I know fair well that Nine Troop, Charlie Company, a 40 commando, had in recent years to remind the Welsh Guards that it was not they that took, that took Sapper Hill and they had to, to remove their recently installed commemorative stone, stating otherwise and other accounts of fallacious memories of raped authors are also guilty of, of gilding the lily. So it's this stolen valour type thing, and, and this rewriting of the history needed to be sort of subtly corrected. So Steve gave himself a mission 
which was to secure uh, the placing of the commemorative stone and plaque at Top Manor House, would be an honest testimony uh, of what happened on that, say, 1st of May 82. It started as a good idea and was swiftly embraced by all of us uh, as the right idea. Um, and as Steve says, you, you simply can't rewrite history to provide a different outcome. And that's what you know, obviously the Welsh Guards tried to do. That was the drive to, to make it happen. Um, so once the idea was formed and, and the rationale, the reasoning was, was established, then Steve set about doing the hard yards. So the wording of the plaque had to uh, go through some intelligent and necessary filters plus peer review, and it took several draws before satisfying the Royal Marines Historical and Ethical Committees that the text wasn't jingoistic or biased, and that was always the aim from the start. And once agreement on that was reached, then a funding application was submitted to the Royal Navy Royal Marines Charity. The application had to, had to be supported through an action plan, a life and management plan, because once you put you know, your memorial stone in, you know, how is it going to be maintained as we And that's quite, I mean, and that's quite an important point because as you go around the island, I mean, there's loads of these things. And, you know, and you realise that it has to be something sort of substantial. Um, so a casting company, which is Anglia Casting of the market leaders, the high specification products that could guarantee 25 years. So that met committee's requirements. So the cost of the plaque was approved by the Royal Navy and the Royal Marines charities and it was delivered to the Falklands in 2019. So if paying for the plaque and getting to that point, you know, was uh, was just the tip of the iceberg, because as you say, it was then uh, trying to establish, you know, the capital cost of the entire project was probably quite a challenge to identify. And Steve himself, bless him, had put himself in a bit of a bit of a corner because got so far down the road with financial assistance, but now, because Top Mother House is, is now 7K away from a, from a new road, if you like, you know, is, is how could you get there and, I, you know, and identify the, the appropriate stone? So there was a lot of ex-RM assistance down on the Falklands, and Cody Easto was, was one of them. He was an ex-personal weapons and went a pilot, and he was flying down the Falklands for a long time post-conflict. So they identified this huge, massive, as you can see in the thing, stone. What you see above the ground, you know, you've got a third of that height again below it. I didn't know that from the stone. I thought it was just sat in the surface. I know. It, it, <laughs> it, the stone was identified, so it was marrying up the plaque to the stone, and the stone then had to be dressed so the plaque could be set on top of it. So, you know, that was a challenge. And then the next thing was to find people who, who could do that. So you've got four and a half tonne worth of stone. It's going to be carted 7.5k across wild country, which is through streams, over ditches. So first of all, you've got to excavate, dig the big hole, and then carry the thing across, put it in, and set it in. And of course, that would not have been possible without support of the landowner, Darren Bagley and his family uh, that owned the Top Marlow farm there, gave that part of the land you know, free of charge. And of course, when... We went there on that day to look at it. There was um, Robin Goodwin and his son, Kenton. Now, his son is he's 30, 30 years old. He is to mechanics what astronauts are to bloody flying. I mean, what this guy can't do is it's just amazing. There was quite a crowd of us there on the particular day, and we invited Kenton to, to talk to everybody to explain how he, you know, him and Uncle Mike that he had with him and his dad 
organised this and he, he gave a very humbling oration. And again, he said he was not born in 82, but he felt he owed something to, to the veterans and in his words, creating the freedom for his young children to grow up without fear. And they never asked for a penny. It was... Yeah. Even now I find that moving because of... This is a generation after 82, and, and they felt so strong. And we're in spring. Kenton himself has 32,000 acres of farm, and this is, you know, the lambing season. So there were extremely busy people, and they just took that on as, uh, as normal. And... Um, and it was just it was just very, very moving. I think that can be summed up in the email copy you sent me from Robin Corradale. And I'll just read it out, because so, I think it just sums up everything we've talked about, really. And Robin says this email, and he's one of the three local farmers who, who helped make the stone happen. And in the email he says, It was a pleasure to have shared your moments. I will cherish your acquaintance with all the lads. It was for me an historic moment meeting you all the very people who were prepared to lay down your lives for my freedom and that of the generations that have since followed. One thing that's come out in this podcast, Nigel, and talking to you before as well, is just that level of support and gratitude that the public down there mm. have shown. Mm. I think moving forward, Nigel and I have been discussing about collaborating in a couple more episodes. For getting So maybe looking at doing a, a couple more episodes on some of the battlefields and getting some of the civilians in to have a chat about what they did during the war as well, so we can uh, have a talk about that and get that on record too. Sounds like an amazing trip down south you had there. We're not going to do Desert Island Ditz this time, but I don't know if you remembered, but I did ask you to re recommend a book this time. I recommendations. Did, I did. Yeah. I'm going to recommend An Unsung Hero, which is Tom Crean, which is the author by Michael Smith. Now, as an ex-Royal Marine, the, the Royal Marine's motto is, uh, is by sea, by land. And Tom Crean was uh, an Irish guy who joined the British Navy back in 1901 and did four of the big expeditions down in the Antarctic. He did Captain Scott's 1910 Terra Nova expedition, which was the race against Amundsen. And during that event, Crean did a 56-kilometre solo walk across the Ross Ice Chief uh, shelf to save the life of Edward Evans, and that led him receiving receiving the Albert Medal. His third Antarctic venture was on the Endurance, led by Shackleton, and that's where Shackleton picked him to be part of that small boat crew that did the 800-mile nautical journey across the seas there. For me, Tom Crean, if ever there was a Bible to be what it would be like to be a proper Royal Marine sergeant, Tom Crean is your man. Was he the ship's carpenter? He was, he was good with his hands, but the fact where they everybody sort of focused him, he was actually the natural leader. If Tom Crean had been an officer, he would have superseded, you know, what history has written. Uh, he's the most underrated mm. guy, um, I think, there's been in, in sort of polar expeditions. And it is just phenomenal. And, and out in Anna School, the west of Ireland, there's a, there's a pub there and it's got all of his sort of memorabilia in and it's uh, definitely worth a visit, but it's a, it's, it's a good read. And it's, you talk about hard men, quiet men, unassuming men, just get on and do their job. I mean, he was Scott and, and others always turned to him. So it was just a yeah. great character. I've read account of that expedition a few times and it never fails to amaze me what they did. I mean, setting sail in those seas and open boats... And they, they made landfall in, uh, uh, what island was it? Uh, was it South Georgia? South Georgia. Uh, I can't remember. Yeah. South Georgia. And then they, they basically made a, 
I shared out the uh, the boat on the beach where they stayed for a bit, then realised that we're not going to get rescued, so we're going to have to tab. Or, okay. sorry, I should use the correct terms here, yomp in marine terms. Yeah. They should... <laughs> Shit. They had to yomp across the mountains in South Georgia and they made crampons out of rope and off they went to eventually navigate across those mountains and get to a whaling station. You know, Amazing. Yeah, I mean, he was the ML of his time. And um, you know, just a phenomenal... That good point, like where you put, put that one in there. Like, that was a good one. <laughs> yeah, no, well, I see by land, mate. That's what it is. <laughs> no, but that, that's a great analogy you did there, mate. I can see why, why you've chose that. So... Um, I'm going to try and redeem the RAS reputation of my choice after we slated them at the start of the pod. Okay. So I'm going for a book called Tempsford Academy. And Tempsford was a discreet airbase located between Cambridge and Bedford during the Second World War. And it was designed for SOE missions. And basically what they did is they camouflaged the place up. They make it look like a semi-working farm. And now a lot of that was done by an illusionist. And so it was serving as the RAS Special Duty Squadron and they... The depth of where they flew was amazing. They flew as high up as the Arctic Circle, dropping arms and supplies to resistance groups, and as far south as uh, southern Europe. And basically there, the uh, the Americans with uh, SOE, they started out with the OSS, the organisation for, I've just forgotten the acronym is, but it was the predecessor to the CIA. And basically the British took them on board, taught them what they'd learned, all the navigation techniques, how to do the infiltrations at low level into Europe and other locations and drop off secret agents and arms to the resistance. An amazing history. And again, these little places are all around us. And I think it goes back to very similar to what you're doing with Top Marlow House and that the guy that wrote this book discovered this airfield and has wrote the history of it to try and capture it before it's lost. And I think... A lot of what we discussed in this podcast is about that, getting those stories down before they're lost to time. Yeah. yeah. So, Nigel, that was absolutely great, mate. Really pleasure to catch up with you and the guys again and what you've achieved and looking forward to a bit more collaboration in the future, hopefully. Okay. Thank you. Good luck oh. with it. Oh, thanks, mate. So that's it for another episode. And again, thanks to Nigel for coming to the pod and to you, the listener, for your continued support and suggestions. Please keep them coming and our email and social media links are at the bottom of the notes. You can find us on all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And if you download us from iTunes, like the podcast, it'd be great if you could leave us a review there or anywhere you get your podcast from. Thanks again to Nick Bill for his continued support to the series and offering technical help through his company, ISAR. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.